Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman. This week we talked with certified public accountant Michael Eckstein, who shares with us a little bit about his practice and how it shifts from a regular tax return type business into more of an advisory business for small business owners. During the episode, we talked about a few key areas and beliefs that he has, one of which is outsource your weak points and not having to be a jack of all trades for entrepreneurs. Another thing we talked about is increasing prices, how you can overcome the fear of doing that in a small business and create an action plan. We also talk about how you can't necessarily always sell your way out of major issues of overspending in your personal life. And so there's a ton of great information in here, whether or not you're thinking about starting a side hustle or a small business, or you're an entrepreneur right now and uh, wanting to achieve growth in your business. This is a terrific episode. Be sure to listen to the whole thing. And without further ado, let's bring on my friend, Michael Eckstein. Hey, Michael Eckstein. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk today and have you on the podcast. You are a certified public accountant, a CPA, and uh, run a tax advisory business. And we have yet to have a CPA on the show, and I'm excited about that. So specifically for our audience that may be entrepreneurs or running a, a side hustle or even just a solo business, uh, what I appreciate about you, Michael, is that you, you share that there's more than just deductions when it comes to talking to you. Yay. So I want to make sure to get into that today. Yeah. But before we do, would you mind, Michael, telling us a little bit about where you grew up and what was life like? Uh, what was money like in your house growing up? So I grew up on Long Island, uh, the North Shore, right? When I was, I guess, in third grade-ish, we moved into Suffolk County to Huntington. I don't know if there's anyone listening from Huntington, but that's where I grew up. That's where my practice is, right? Uh, money isn't really something that was talked about. My dad is also an accountant. So on one hand, it wasn't really a topic you talked about at the dinner table, but it was somewhat present, you know. And I ended up becoming an accountant, and I guess through that also becoming financially literate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's neat. And so as you got to see your dad and his experience with his CPA practice, uh, how much was, was audibly shared with you versus you just learning from osmosis? I think a lot of it was osmosis. He's not a very good, um, not, not that he's a bad teacher, but there's certain things about it that are very hard to teach. You know, you don't realize what you really know. You can teach the tax law and everything, but you don't really realize what you know about running a business. A lot of it is just kind of inside you. It's hard to communicate. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I mean, there's one aspect of simply just getting a CPA designation and learning accounting through classes, but it's a different thing to actually serve as an accountant because then you mm -hmm. need to do all these business ownery things and, and talk with people, you know, and run run the practice. So that's another aspect of it, right? Yeah. At, at what point did you decide as like say a young adult that you felt like this was a career path that was right for you? So 
It was early in college. Originally, I wanted to become uh, some sort of computer scientist, something like that. And I ended up pivoting. And I mean, it's a story as old as time. My dad was an accountant, so I was exposed to it. So I said, you know, why not take some accounting classes? You know, it's not the most exciting coursework, but I was good at it. Traditional accounting, not really tax accounting, because I wasn't, you know, I took one or two classes and it came back in college, but the majority of it was traditional accounting, debits and credits. And it was something I excelled at. So I figured, you know, why not? I could do this forever. That's kind of how it happened. And then I came out on my early career, I was working with my dad. So he had a small tax practice and I kind of stepped in there. Yeah. And I think when folks hear about working with a parent, uh, you know, there's maybe a potential vision for taking over the business or mm-hmm. working together as, you know, senior and junior partners. But uh, mm-hmm. you shared that that wasn't necessarily always the vision or the path for you guys. So mm-hmm. talk a little bit about what it's like, because so few of us probably get, to, get the opportunity to work with a parent. What was it like working with your dad in the early days? So I think the original goal or you know vision was to take over the practice but kind of the reality of the practice necessitated a separate thing because his practice before i'd come to work for him he was kind of getting ready for retirement he stopped taking new clients he stopped taking referrals and the business stopped growing because it was at a good size it was supporting the family it was supporting everything so why he didn't need to work harder. He didn't need to take more clients. Mm. But the problem is you can't pass down a practice that isn't growing. <laughs> exactly. For me, it has to exist in 20 years, right? So he was just kind of done growing it and he was ready to retire. So it kind of became, how do we keep growing it? And the route we went with was the separate practice. Okay. Yeah. So you formed your own entity, your own practice, started with all your own new clients and were building from there? Yeah, it's a totally separate practice and there's good and bad with it. The good thing is is that he's kind of in the area as a kind of mentor or if I have questions and certain things, he's still accessible. But it also, the good thing is that it lets me expand in a different way. Instead of having to take over all his systems, doing everything the way he wanted to, you know, the way we used to, it allows me to grow and, you know, say, I want to use this software. I want to use that software. I want Hmm. my relationships with clients to be about something else. You know, I think it should be about more than just taxes. I think it should be about taking a step further and helping them run business. I like that. Yeah, you're right. You know, it could, I'd imagine that, you know, working with a, with a parent or even like, you know, maybe a relative or something like that, you, you're not just inheriting a business, you're inheriting legacy systems like software, yeah. you're inheriting uh, like, like conversation topics maybe from, mm-hmm. you know, from mom and dad to that, that, that those previous clients. So something I, I guess I didn't think about until you brought it up. So there's more than just yeah. the business that you might be taking on. So, you know, by establishing your own practice, that's neat. You get a little bit more flexibility to design yeah. it the way that you want. So talk to us about then your practice you shared with me on a previous conversation that it's, it's evolved a little bit over time. So mm-hmm. when you first started out, what did it look like? Who were the types of people that you were helping? So when I first started out, it was your, I guess, the typical way a lot of accounting practices start. It was kind of the quote unquote side hustle. You're doing personal taxes of friends, relatives, colleagues, or whatever that you met along the way. And it slowly kind of grows from there. So in the beginning, it was a very personal tax practice, right? As time went on, it slowly became 
around a tax practice. So I was doing business clients. I was doing, you know, tax, you know, representation, helping people with their issues before the IRS, you know, mm. audits, stuff like that. Mm. And then as I kept going, it's now slowly changing into more of an advisory, uh, small business advisory practice. Usually people hear advisory, they think, you know, financial services, investments, but not really that kind of advisory. It's more so clients have questions about running business yeah. and accountants have answers for it. And it's just, you know, helping clients run their businesses better. So there are questions about, um, you know, how to save money better, how to start saving for retirement, how to take like that first step, how to uh, deal with workman's comp, stuff like that, you know, stuff that no one really wants to answer, but mm. you need answers. Yeah, totally. Well, you bring up a couple of good points and I want to pause and make sure to reflect with the listeners here. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, for this is a little bit of my own experience, but I know from having other financial planning clients that sometimes the view of the, the CPA is one where uh, we talk once a year or mm-hmm. they're just helping me file the return or they're just helping me catch one deduction or they're just mm-hmm. helping me remind me about the IRA. And so as a financial planner, I find that that's, that's, that's only you're only scratching the surface of what that relationship could be. And obviously mm-hmm. someone doesn't always need um, a, a, an advisory type CPA uh, relationship, but as a financial planner, that's one that I would hope for a lot of my clients because yeah. it adds so much more value above and beyond things that maybe aren't my expertise. And that just isn't just filing a return. It's thinking about for small business people, you know, sitting down and taking time to explain these uh, workman's cop, like you said, that's just, where else mm-hmm. are you going to learn that sort of thing? So I think it's encouraging to hear from you. And it's important for the listeners to know there are CPAs, accountants that are out there that offer these type of services. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's an important thing to look into. So, you know, you, yeah. you're, you're not the old school person that's just going to, you know, not educate. So it seems like, yeah. you know, what does that education process look like? What does a relationship with a CPA under the advisory service like? What, what does that look like? So... I think it's a little bit different for every accountant that does it because it's not like taxes where there's a correct way to prepare a tax return. And if you don't do it that way, you're committing tax fraud in the process. Advisory is a little bit more fluid. Everyone kind of does their own thing. Some people specialize, you know, in particular systems. They're very good tech advisory. They'll help you set up your CRM, your accounting softwares, and all the things that kind of connect into it. It really depends what you're looking for. Yeah. For me, the way I like to view it is business clients really like sitting down with me during tax season and, you know, they pay, you know, let's say $1,000, but the value they're getting isn't the tax return. It was that hour or two sitting with me, asking me their business questions. It could be like, what's your opinion on this website? But instead of doing that once a year, now it's every single month. So you have questions, you need help with something, you don't know who to talk to. And I think we'd previously talked about this, you know, who do you talk to about business? Your spouse means well, but you know, from my experience talking to my girlfriend, she means well, but she doesn't get the struggles I kind of go through. You go networking and it's kind of a facade you put on. No one ever is at networking events talking about the struggles, the problems their business has because they're afraid they're not going to get business now because you're uh, you know, a weak business or something that you've got issues as opposed to the other accountant next to me who's perfect. So you never talk about what your problem is. 
That's so funny. That makes me laugh because you're right. The yeah, the networking setting, everyone's trying to put on a shell or an aura that I've got all my stuff figured out. You know, like I don't want to yeah. even share that I've got any cracks in my armor. That's ridiculous. So prove but more to your point, who do you talk to about yeah. your business? All of us are trying to maybe struggle or grow in different areas. And the the CPA might be a, you know a, an awesome person to do that with. Yeah. So, and um, as it's evolved and, you know, we've got limited amount of time with any business, is there, is there an aspect of small businesses that you enjoy working with the most or have started to gravitate towards? Like who's kind of the common business that you're working with right now? Right now, it's two weird kind of groups, service professionals, you know, so marketers, lawyers, consultants, that sort of area. And then uh, contractors. I don't know how they find me. They're not referring each other, but they find me. A lot of uh, tradesmen, stuff like that. But it's a good group of people to work with also. That's, that's, that's great. So on your website, Michael, for uh, xteenadvisory.com, I'll put this in some of the show notes for people that are interested. They can go check it out. I really like something that you've got. You know, five simple strategies to strengthen your agency, uh, you know, talking to that, that core audience that you talked about. And while we can't cover all five today, mm-hmm. there's two that I really want to call to attention for the listeners and, uh, and have you break this apart. So the one thing I, that I love, which is number three out of your five is outsource your weak points. And I'm going to read something that you have on your website. There's a dangerous mentality in entrepreneurial communities that you need to be a jack of all trades and do everything in your business and so on and so forth. So tell us what you've experienced by entrepreneurs trying to be jack of all trades and why you feel that we should outsource our weak points. Okay, yeah. So this is a little bit from personal experience also. When I started my accounting firm, it was a very bootstrap firm. It was do everything yourself and keep costs as low as possible and see what happens. And I think every entrepreneur, there's a stage where you gotta do that, where you just started out, you're not really making money, you can't be spending money crazily. So everyone kind of starts in that mindset of bootstrapping their company, their firm, their agency, their whatever. But eventually you get to a point where that holds you back and you don't want to outsource, you're scared to outsource. But the reality is every business already outsources. The second you hire an accountant to do your taxes, you've outsourced something, right? So you're doing it. The thing is, what other things can you outsource? For example, you know, with marketing. Realistically, could you do marketing yourself? Yeah, maybe. You're not paying the management fees or whatever. But how profitable is your marketing? Are you just throwing money down the drain? Is it better to hire someone, pay them the management fee, and actually have better results? Or with accounting, you know, everyone wants to do accounting themselves. Everyone wants to do their own bookkeeping. They're like, I can do it. I got QuickBooks, whatever. But realistically, how many hours are you spending doing your own bookkeeping? For most people, when you have no experience, you didn't really learn anywhere, you're struggling through two hours a week, three hours a week. You know, what's your time worth? Say, you know, you pay a mechanic 50 bucks an hour, right? Your time must be at least worth that much, 50 bucks an hour. So you're spending two hours a week. That's four, that's well, sorry, eight a month. You can quickly say, oh, it's a few hundred bucks of just your time that you're wasting on some of these tasks that you're not really doing that great, doing that well. And then there's other mistakes. You know, what if you're, you know, creating errors in your bookkeeping, you know? Stuff like that. What about the headaches you're causing yourself? It just kind of holds you back. You think you're saving money because you're not writing a check out to someone. 
but you're wasting your time. You're keeping yourself up at night. You're creating mistakes and stuff like that. And there's a non-monetary cost to it. Mm, mm, that's super interesting. I'm glad you said yeah. that. And I, I really appreciate what you shared. And I think this is an important topic for, um, let's say, people that are in a corporate world and they're shifting out of that. Maybe they have mm-hmm. a vision to become an entrepreneur or a small business owner, or even for people who are real true entrepreneurs, but they're in that building phase. Mm-hmm. This idea of being a jack of all trades, I can do it myself. Maybe I've got the time to do it. Maybe I've got the software that makes it yeah. slick. And so, so I think it's easy. I think I can teach myself. There's also another piece of this that's uh, hard to admit both myself because I've experienced this, but also for others that there's a, there's a pride piece to it. I don't want to admit to the fact that I can't do this myself. And that just needs to be acknowledged because I think, and I find with working with professional service people, they're not, uh, not intelligent. Obviously they have a high IQ. And so it's something that they could do on their own, but at a certain point, if you're scaling and you're growing, I think, you know, understanding your weak points and just being honest about it actually allows for you to break through a plateau and Mm -hmm. puts you in a space where maybe you can kind of grow past that. So I think that's interesting. Um, You know, it's not necessarily that you're bad at whatever it is. You could be good at it. It's just that your time could be better spent doing something else. If you could outsource your 10 hours of bookkeeping to someone for 500 bucks a month, and in that time, you can go bill out that 10 hours at 100 bucks an hour or whatever it is, outsource it. Yeah. That's a great spread. Yeah. Right. You can make more money going out there and working or even just taking time off, you know, instead of doing the accounting on your Saturdays, spend time with your family or something. That's also worth money. You know? Yeah. That's worth a lot of money. But, you know, for me as a dad of three kids, that's worth a hell of a lot of money. And yeah. so, and then there's, there's certain things I'd be willing to pay for, for that Saturday with the family. So, yeah. Something else that you bring up on your website, uh, again, the list of five things, this is number four. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is increase your prices. (laughs) And I want to read again something that you have. Your prices aren't high enough unless you're getting some pushback. Oh yeah. man, I, I, you know, just as on the intro here, I think for people that have uh, started their own businesses, they're worried because one, one hand, they love what they do and they just want to give it away for free. And on the other hand, they're scared because they don't want people to say no or turn them away. They think mm-hmm. it's a reflection of themselves. So talk to me about why you feel uh, and you believe in increasing your prices and how people can understand that for their business. Yeah. The thing with increasing your prices is it speaks first off to profitability. Everyone wants to be more and more profitable. And the easiest way to become more profitable is to increase your prices. Yeah, that's just, that's the first things first. It's the easiest way to become more profitable. And then there's a handful of other things. Everyone just kind of, when they start, they just kind of set a price and then they kind of get stuck in that price and they never increase the price, but there was no rhyme or reason for the original price. They're just stuck with it now. Once you start increasing your price, once you start getting a little bit of pushback, 10% of people saying, oh, that's a bit too much for me. That's how you know you're starting to hit the market rate. People start saying, I don't want to pay more. I don't know. But you're not so crazy high that no one wants to hire you. you know, and it's a good place. You know, Speaking from personal experience, when I first started, I you know, set prices. I did a little bit of research, but it wasn't anything crazy. And I had those prices for a few years. And then one day I decided, you know, next tax season, I'm going to increase prices. I got to increase, increase prices. We see what happened. I increased prices. And from personal experience, I can tell you, the sky didn't fall. I 
<laughs> didn't lose clients because that's the scariest thing, you know. That's the scariest thing. Yeah, it's you're all going to come crumbling down. Exactly. You're afraid that this is the linchpin. You raise the prices. That's the end of it. I'm not saying to double your prices all at once, but slowly, methodically, start pushing it up. Yeah. And I'll tell you from personal experience, no client balked at my price increases. Can, because you've lived through it personally, maybe if you're open to sharing a little bit more about that, I think um, you also have on your website, I think there's there's the first, you might get the instinct like, shoot, I've either, I'm spreading myself too thin or I have too many clients or I'm in a groove and I think I'm good enough, I'm valuable enough or I can't increase mm-hmm. my prices, whatever those are. You get, Maybe you get to that first logic, like emotional hurdle, but then it comes like, how do you get a pl- game plan? Like, what percentage are you going to increase and how do you notify? How do you legally notify people? So tell me about how did you decide on the time frame and the process for communicating your price increase? So with notification, because taxes are a very seasonal business, before tax season, I notified everyone, right? There are some people out there that think you don't have to notify people because, you know, your credit card company never notifies you you know, it never calls you up and say, like, hey, your interest rates change. They just kind of send you some email and you ignore it and bam, that's it. Personally, I think if you're in a service business, it's good service to notify your client and say, hey, prices are going up. The best time to do it is when you're re-signing engagement letters or contracts. You know, if you're running a business, you should have contracts, you should have engagement letters. It doesn't have to be some crazy, like, as long as a mortgage, you know, 100 pages thing, but a page or two. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. This is what happens if it goes wrong. This is what you owe me. And every year when you re-sign them, slowly increase the price. And if anyone really says anything, the reality is inflation affects your business too. The cost of my software goes up every single year. The cost of the paper I print things on goes up every year. My rent, everything goes up every single year. And same for your business. No one's in a business where things stay the same. Everything goes up. You know, And you have to raise prices a little bit. But the best time is during contract renewals. You know, that once a year, if you have all your clients on the same schedule, like you're renewing everyone in January, you can just get it all out of the way at once. Uh, if you're a seasonal, like I am, or like my tax practices, right before it happens. So other seasonal businesses would be like some construction kind of things, like landscapers, big contractors, general contractors tend to do their things in warmer months. Right beforehand, you say, I'm increasing prices. And I think, I think you also asked how much, how do you know how much to raise prices? You can always ask your like, fellow colleagues, peers in the industry, what they're charging, where are they at? But sometimes you don't have that information and you just kind of got to give it a shot. Increase it 5%, 10%. Increase it at least enough to cover the inflation that you've been facing. But, you know, 5%, 10%, see what happens. And every single year, 5%, 10%, see what happens. And then eventually when people start going, oh, this is too much, or you can't sign new clients, it's too much, for them, then, you know, you've hit your plateau, time to stop raising prices for at least, you know, maybe a year or two until inflation starts catching up again. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So I appreciate you sharing that. Some else um, just uh, that I want to make sure to touch on is you, you, you said earlier, you know, increased profitability, you can, mm-hmm. you can increase prices. I'm coming up with this mental image, though, of increasing the price of the business and somehow that just 
not trickling into the actual margin or profitability there. So tell me about any cases or stories um, or maybe ways that people can guard against that. How, how do business owners ensure that as they increase prices, they don't also increase some of the, mm-hmm. the spending that goes along with it? I think with that, I think with increasing prices, it's a very clean way to increase profit because you take your existing clients, yeah, 10% revenue on, you don't really add expenses unless you're giving them a better service, unless you say, I'm going to increase prices plus I'm adding a service on it. If that service requires you know, more employee hours, more software, then you're creating expenses. But a similar way that everyone likes to increase profitability, and I think it's somewhat dangerous, is that people think they can sell their way out of a hole. That if they're not profitable, if they just keep selling, 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 bringing on new clients, selling more widgets, whatever it is, they can sell their way out of their hole. And sometimes you can't because your business is already not profitable. So you're continually selling something that may not be profitable. So selling more can sometimes do just that, dig you further into a hole, create more expenses that you really aren't ready to handle right now. That is so important for many people to hear and actually potentially a hard truth that, um, you know, we, we hear stories of like Amazon or these unicorns out of Silicon Valley yeah. and they're not profitable. But, you know, once they scale, all of a sudden the tables are going to turn and immediately they are. And without debating the relevancy of those stories, we're talking in this moment about Mm -hmm. small business. We're talking about you and your service-based business. And so selling your way out of a hole, Michael, man, that that may not be the solution here. And you may have some bigger issues that that you need to sort of work through before you Mm -hmm. move on to the next scale level. And that's so important. I'm glad you talked about it. Michael, there's another aspect of uh, accounting and small business that I want to bring up. And and that is when it comes to, for for me, dealing with uh, financial planning clients in the um, arena of retirement planning, oftentimes we start talking about what's your lifestyle like right now? What are are the, the core expenses you have plus the discretionary? Let's talk about the travel. Let's talk about the Mm -hmm. lifestyle that you want to have. And uh, to compare and contrast, corporate clients sometimes have have this more clear cut because it's you get your paycheck from W-2, whatever doesn't go to your 401k, goes to your mm-hmm. checking account. And if you spend some or all of that, we know the dollar figure that we need to recreate for your lifestyle. Let's say as an example, my business clients to compare and contrast though, it seems to be that it, it can sometimes be murkier because mm-hmm. there's lifestyle expenses that happen from inside the business. So my question is explain to the listeners, <clears throat> what's the right and wrong on that and uh, how should they be keeping track of business and personal expenses for their small business? I think personal expenses inside the small business can get dangerous quickly. There are certain ones that are legal, like you can deduct health insurance sometimes, sometimes life insurance, certain car expenses, corporate retirement accounts instead of personal IRAs. You can move stuff into the business, but not everything is a business expense. And what I see a lot with small business owners, especially very small, under the million dollar mark where they have like a handful of employees, they don't really have anyone to keep them accountable. They'll just sometimes swipe the corporate card instead of their personal card for whatever. Maybe the Netflix subscription is on the corporate card instead of the personal card. And the problem with that is, is it kind of clouds the situation. It clouds your own personal budgeting, you know, because everyone kind of keeps a tally of how much money they got in their head. 
you know, it clouds that because now it's kind of coming out of two pools instead of the one pool, like you were saying. And then the second thing, which is a little bit more important, I think, is it can kind of cloud your business reports. You know, if your business reporting is wrong, you can't really use it to make decisions anymore. You know, and that's a really important thing. You know, look at your profit and loss once a month for 10 minutes. But if there's junk expenses in there that you aren't pulling back out, it's just creating an issue. Yeah. That's another incredible point. It's like if you're going to understand the metrics of your business from all the, you know, the financial statement standpoint, mm-hmm. that beyond just whether or not it's right or wrong, it actually is kind of challenging to get a sense of like, where am I actually at with my business? Yeah. yeah. And I've found personally that people deducting personal expenses in small business that shouldn't be deducted in there, they kind of fall into a black hole where everyone kind of forgets about them because the accountant doesn't deduct on the tax return because they're not supposed to, or you remove it from the profit and loss, but never hits your personal bank account. So you kind of forget they happen. It's this like weird kind of Bermuda triangle situation. My personal opinion on all of it, deduct what you can legally deduct. Things like health insurance can be deducted. There's certain more, you know, complicated mechanics to it, but it can be deducted. And then pay yourself a legitimate livable salary or wage and keep the rest of the money in the business. So if it takes you 80 grand a year to survive your whole family, everything that you pay yourself $80,000 a year, it's as if you're working at a job and that's your money. All your personal expenses come out of that. And the rest of that stays in the business. It's used to help the business grow. It's used to help invest in future things for the business, pay new employees and stuff like that. And then eventually at the end of the year, if there's a profit, you take some of the profit. I love it. Yeah. If you Digging into it, you kind of cloud everything. You shortchange yourself. Your business never really grows the way you want it to because you can't invest. There's no money anymore. And it just kind of disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely insightful, Michael. I appreciate you sharing all of this. And actually, there's a ton of value from the show today. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. it. If people are interested in getting in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Okay. So you can either add me on LinkedIn you know, just mention where you found me. Just, hey, I was listening to John's podcast. Otherwise, I'm going to think, who's this guy, right? Uh, or, you know, just go to my website, uh, exteenadvisory.com. Perfect. Exteenadvisory.com. I'll put some links in the show notes. So mm-hmm. with that, we'll wrap it up. Again, very appreciative of your time and expertise. So hope you have a great afternoon and hope to chat soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.